Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from New York, I'm Paul Newton in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's what you need to know. Confronting China, tough words for Beijing as the NATO summit gets underway. Musk moves Bitcoin, surges as Tesla offers. Yeah, it is a crypto U-turn. And Freedom Day delayed in England, which was set to announce an extension to lockdown restrictions. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday as we are live, as you can see here, from the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, a busy week ahead for global diplomacy with Russian President Vladimir Putin and U.S. President Biden getting ready for their all-important summit on Wednesday. Now, as I was saying, an important week here, not just for diplomacy, but for the financial markets as well. The U.S. Federal Reserve begins its closely watched two-day policy meeting tomorrow. Ahead of all the action, U.S. stocks, they're like, eh, meh, it's kind of on track to be incredibly flat. Doesn't seem to be anything moving this market. But the S&P, though, a reminder, they are at record highs on that indice, and they're coming off their third straight week of gains. Now, European stocks, meantime, beginning the week at records, too. Investors so far shaking off hotter-than-expected inflationary numbers pretty much right across the globe. Now, markets still believing that Get this, the Newtonian theory of physics will apply at some point. Yes, you all remember, it's what comes up must go down. Or in Fed speak, the recent price hikes are merely transitory. That means temporary for you and I. The Fed likely to stick closely to its inflation script at the beginning of this week. Investors, however, will be on the lookout for any sign, any at all, that the Fed is, you know, thinking about, thinking about cutting back its unprecedented support for the U.S. economy. Any so-called taper talk could, in fact, rattle the market. We want to get right to those drivers now. Beijing is firing back after the world's wealthiest nations issued some of the strongest criticism of China in decades. Beijing accused the G7 of, quote, deliberate slanders after the group confronted it on human rights, the South China Sea, and clarifying the origins of COVID-19. The G7's tough line on China is likely to be echoed today as world leaders gather in Brussels for the NATO summit. NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg set the tone as he arrived there this morning. We also know that China does not share our values. We see how they crack down on democratic protests in Hong Kong and also persecute minorities in their own country and use modern uh, technology, social media, 
facial recognition uh, to monitor and surveillance their own population in a way we've never seen before. Uh, all of this matters for our security. And no country and no continent can uh, manage deal with this alone. So therefore we need to respond together as an alliance, as NATO. And the message to China there clear. Ivan Watson joins me now from Hong Kong and Melissa Bell is at NATO headquarters in Brussels. We go first to you, Ivan. And of course, China fi firing back as it would, very pointed remarks saying that, look, these comments from the group of seven were slanderous. Okay, so the rhetoric is sharper, but substantively, is China expecting anything different? Well, that's a big question. There's a new American president, and, and China's trying to see how this unfolds. You know, it's a national holiday here, so Beijing was relatively quiet, the central Chinese government, but the spokesperson for the Chinese embassy in London was busy this weekend putting out statements, taking shots at the G7. Uh, here's an excerpt from one of them saying, the days when global decisions were dictated by a small group of countries are long gone, going on to criticize the so-called system and order advocated by a handful of countries. In a subsequent statement, as you mentioned, accusing the G7 in its final communique of slander against China, talking about sinister intentions of a few countries such as as the United States, and then a point-by-point -point rebuttal of the criticisms that were put into writing in that G7 final communique, such as a call for China to respect human rights and freedoms, not only in its Xinjiang region, where it's accused of genocidal policies and, and mass incarceration of ethnic minorities, but also here in Hong Kong with the, the removal of democratic freedoms and autonomy enshrined in international treaties. Uh, China rejecting a fresh call from the G7 for an investigation of the source of the coronavirus first detected in the Chinese city of Wuhan in the end of 2019. Uh, and also, uh, you know, there was another kind of contradiction pointed out here that that President Biden coming to this summit, uh, saying that he wanted to talk tough on China, uh, was also bringing to the table an idea of a, of a big infrastructure project uh, that he's calling Build Back Better the World, uh, trying to help finance infrastructure in poorer countries. Of course, that's a program that China has done for years under its Belt and Road Initiative. Biden's message was that democracies, wealthy democracies, have to step up their game against autocracies. Take a listen, Paula. I think we're in a contest, not with China per se, but a context with autocrats, autocratic governments around the world, as whether or not democracies can compete with them in the rapidly changing 21st century. So I can anticipate on Tuesday when China goes back to work, uh, some tough statements coming from Chinese government officials. It's nothing new hearing Washington and Beijing snipe at each other. What's different here is that you have a new American president who's not going it alone in a trade war against China. He's getting allies who have deep economic interests with the world's second largest economy, getting them to agree in writing to challenge China, which is no small feat and something that China hasn't really faced during the past four years of the Trump administration. Yeah, for sure. And what, again, will be interesting uh, is whether or not substantively anything will change. And Melissa, to you now, uh, we heard uh, the NATO Secretary General obviously talking about China, but, you know, obviously China doesn't have a seat at these tables. 
The person that does have a seat at the table is, of course, the leader of Turkey at NATO, and no doubt that will be a sub really a substantive issue going forward for NATO uh, in the next few hours. That's right, Paula. You just heard the American president there to talk about his concern about autocratic regimes, and of course that goes to the heart of uh, what is likely to be a fairly uh, fraught and frosty meeting when he has a bilateral meeting later on with the Turkish president. Uh, first of all, because there is tension between Washington and Ankara over the purchase these last few years by Ankara of Russian missiles, but also because uh, Joe Biden has recognized the Armenian uh, genocide. That is an extremely touchy subject for uh, the Turkish president. There was also another tense meeting with Erdogan this morning, this time with Emmanuel Macron. The two men's relationship had deteriorated recently to such an extent, Paula, that they were down to trading uh, uh, verbal abuse, with Erdogan describing uh, uh, Macron as potentially uh, a, a mentally unstable. That's how bad things had gone. In the end, they had a 45-minute meeting. It went on for longer than it should have. It touched on all the points that divide them. And let's be clear, these two NATO allies could not have been more divided on the substantive geopolitical issues of the last few years than they have. And I'm talking here about Syria, Libya, the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and of course, there's also the very thorny question of the French government and Emmanuel Macron's in particular's defense of the French press's right uh, to depict uh, uh, images of the Prophet Muhammad. Of course, Erdogan uh, had been incensed by this, had called for the Muslim world uh, to stand up against it. Emmanuel Macron, we hear, spent a good deal of time explaining France's position. This is not against Islam, it is against radical Islam, and that is France's battle. It is not with the Muslim world, but with its extremist elements. So uh, those are two important uh, uh, meetings with that uh, Turkish president, the only Muslim leader, of course, within NATO, and a crucial ally, but one that has been at odds with his uh, allies for a number of years and over a number of issues. But of course, as you say, that question of China dominating, we've had a chance uh, to have have a quick look at the final communique and that wording that we were just hearing about Ivan from uh, at the G7. How was it going to be here at NATO where a greater proportion of EU countries are represented, EU countries much softer uh, on China than Joe Biden would wish them to be because of those important economic ties? What we see with the outline of in that final communique, should it be adopted, is in fact something that would see Russia as the threat, Russia and China, on the other hand, as a challenge, a sort of wording uh, that will allow both Europeans keen on a softer approach and Americans determined for a harder one to find some kind of common ground here, Paula. Yeah, there is certainly a dichotomy there, and I'm glad you pointed out it wasn't just with China, but with Russia as well in terms of what goes on uh, around the table at NATO. Uh, Mosabel, good to have you there. Appreciate it. And our thanks to Ivan Watson as well for us from Hong Kong. Now, the Elon Musk effect moving Bitcoin once again. It surged as much as 12.5% Sunday after the Tesla CEO opened the door again on accepting the cryptocurrency as payment. Claire Sebastian has more on this. Investors, you know, they're, they've got to be getting sick at this point, Claire, of this love-hate relationship that Elon Musk has with Bitcoin. You know, uh, Paula, that's an interesting question because he does really seem to move this market. It's hard to tell how investors actually feel about it, but it's clear that they are glued to his tweets. Bitcoin has just gone over 40,000 for the first time in June. So clearly there's an effect here. Clearly this rally seems to be holding. And that is because Elon Musk is seen as sort of the poster child and really the catalyst for, for widespread mainstream adoption of Bitcoin. When he uh, tweeted back in May that, that Tesla was going to be suspending uh, accepting payments payments in Bitcoin for its cars, the, the price plummeted. It was, it was back at about 56000 then, so it's gone nowhere near back to, to those levels. But it is still holding today. And it's interesting because 
in actual fact, if you look at what he said, his tweet, we didn't really learn too much that was new. We knew that uh, Bitcoin had, had sold 10% of their holdings in the first quarter. We knew that the reason was to sort of test the liquidity uh, of the market. One thing that was, that was new was that we didn't know the threshold for how he was going to determine when they came back uh, into accepting Bitcoin. He said that that's around 50% of clean energy usage. So that is significant. And of course, this, this, this sort of uh, operates as a confirmation to the market that this was a suspension, not a cancellation. But there's a bigger question in this puller, and that is, how will he actually determine that 50% is from clean energy? It's very difficult to audit the energy usage of Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's been a debate going back and forth, depending on who you speak to, right? In terms of, is this really real? Are you calculating it properly? And how do you calculate it? Right, exactly. The best estimate that we seem to have at the moment is from the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance. They say, uh, according to their survey this year, that 39% of Bitcoin mining comes from renewable sources. Uh, so, so that's you know sort of not too far off 50%, but they say that that's pretty much the same as what they saw when they did the survey back in 2018. And it is very difficult to know for sure, because you have certain miners who'll use both. Who'll use, you know, for example, in, in China, they'll use hydropower and coal. Now, of course, Elon Musk uh, is, is, you know, trying to find a better way for this, as is his, his, his way in life. He has signed up to an idea called the Bitcoin Mining Council, uh, which would sort of encourage more transparency from Bitcoin miners to, to report their energy usage and help with, with knowing when he gets to that threshold. But that is controversial in the Bitcoin community because, of course, any kind of sort of authority overarching power uh, is, is an antithesis to the, the, the decentralized philosophy here. Yeah, still so many uh, interesting points there on a nascent, a nascent currency. Uh, Claire, Sebastian, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. CNN has learned that the U.S. government is assessing reports of a possible leak at a Chinese nuclear power plant. Now, this after the French company that part owns and operates it warned of, quote, an imminent radiological threat. CNN's David Culver is live for us in Shanghai right now. And obviously, just looking at that quote, how worrying are these developments? It sounds terrifying and quite frightening, right, Paula, when you hear imminent radiological threat. Now, we should put this in context because sources that have spoken to our team in Washington, along with those who are U.S. officials based here in China that I've spoken with, have stressed, yeah, this has the potential to be extremely dangerous, very serious, but it also could be resolved rather quickly and smoothly and be a non-issue going forward. Here's what we know. That French company that you mentioned that cooperates that nuclear power plant, Taishan Nuclear Power Plant, located in Guangdong, that's southern China, reached out late last month to the U.S. Department of Energy. And they did that to request a waiver of assistance, a waiver that is in place because of the relation between the U.S. and China. It requires those companies to be issued that type of waiver so as to have permission to then get the technical know-how, so to speak, to then move forward with resolving a fix like this. They put forward that waiver and then they followed up with two more requests, one as recently as late last week. And the request that was most recent suggested that this was an imminent radiological threat and they're referring specifically to a leaking of fission gas, which is a byproduct that naturally comes with nuclear reactors. The concern is the level of the radiological gas that's being emitted here. And they asked the U.S. for that assistance, and they also cited and accused the Chinese of raising the limit so as to essentially allow the plant to continue operating 
and potentially go outside of the safety parameters. Now, we have heard since from the nuclear power plant, along with Framatome, the company that cooperates it with the Chinese, they have suggested that this is all within the safety parameters. They don't specify what exactly those safety parameters are, but they suggest that this is under control, that it's a performance issue as they've worded it, and that they hope to resolve it quickly. They stop short there. I think the real concern though, Paula, going forward is the question of transparency, particularly from the Chinese government. We've reached out for, to the foreign ministry and you heard Ivan there mention this is a national holiday weekend. So we have not yet gotten a response to our inquiry. We've also reached out to Guangdong authorities, the province in, in southern China that's uh, got this plant and is dealing with this issue and wanted to hear if they have any response. They have yet to get back to us. But you've got to put this in context as far as what that province is all about. It's got 126 million people. The town with which this nuclear power plant is located has about a million in of itself. This is about 80 miles from Hong Kong, so it's a very congested area and you've got a lot of folks who could potentially face risk if this were to be elevated to a real serious issue. Now, the Biden administration has claimed that this is not at crisis level just yet. That according to sources who have spoken with CNN. However, they are assessing this and continuing to monitor it. And going forward, we also were curious if they were going to make mass movements of folks who live in that area, some of the residents. You might think that if it is an imminent threat, that they try to get people out of there, especially how congested it is. The sources that I've spoken with who are based here in China, U.S. officials, have suggested to me that they have seen no such movement, so no indication that the Chinese are making any plans to perhaps indicate that this is a greater risk. It's something that we're watching very closely. And it's obviously something that's going to be very sensitive on part of the Chinese as they're going to address this, we expect, tomorrow when they are back to business here, Paula. Yeah, for sure. And as you said, uh, transparency key here. And this is really a global concern, not to mention to the millions who are literally so close uh, to this facility. CNN's David Culver for us live from Shanghai. Appreciate it. Still to come here on First Move, liberated for Independence Day, demand for rooms over America's July 4th holiday. Roran Brack says hotel chain Hyatt, but the CEO warns the rest of the world is lagging behind. And repackaging box to the online retailer goes public via SPAC, the CEO, on why he's joining the latest listing craze. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange, where the major averages are still on track for a pretty flat open. As you can see there, the S&P 500 will struggle to hit fresh all-time highs in early training. The Nasdaq, meantime, I didn't really realize this, is just a half percent away from record levels. But when you see those markets, I mean, I'm here. Are the markets even going to show up today? My goodness. Meantime, shares of biotech firm Novavax is rallying more than 7% pre-market. The company says its COVID-19 vaccine is 90% effective in late-stage trials and is highly effective. This is good news against new variants. Now, Novavax hopes to send its data to the U.S. regulators soon. Its vaccine would be the fourth to be approved by the United States for emergency use. That would be so far right now in terms of everything that's in the pipeline. Japan's Prime Minister, meantime, saying he won support from all G7 leaders for going ahead with the Tokyo Olympics next month, despite concern over a fourth wave of COVID-19 in that country. Following the summit, Shirisuga said, I feel very encouraged to receive this support and will do whatever it takes to make the Tokyo Games a successful event. Meantime, the pandemic has magnified Japan's 
so-called loneliness problem. Basek is live for us in Tokyo with the details. Blake, uh, this continues to be a problem in Japan, but has obviously become so much more pronounced uh, during this pandemic. Yeah, Paula, it's a really sad situation. And Japan is trying to find a solution earlier this year. The government appointed a minister of loneliness to tackle the country's mental health crisis, a seemingly mount, uh, excuse me, monumental task. Now, even before the pandemic hit, Japan had a serious problem with loneliness, social isolation, and suicide. These are issues affecting the entire population, but in different ways. For the third time this week, Masatomi Yoko'o and his team enter a home to clean. A simple job, but nothing about it is easy. He probably died here. I don't know the shape because the body fluid has soaked into the tatami so much. But I think probably here. Yoko'o, president of Memories Company, has been in the cleaning business for about 13 years. But recently, he says cleaning up after lonely deaths, where people die alone and remain undiscovered for long periods of time, has sadly turned into big business. We do this kind of work every day. This scene is that we always witness. We can see that his life is getting rough and that he is issuing an SOS. This is an ordinary scene for us. The 79-year-old man who lived here died alone. The cause of death is unknown. Police say his body was found about a month after he died. Walking through this apartment, it's as if time has stood still. There's still food and drinks on the counter, mail on the floor. And if you take a look around this apartment, there is garbage and clothes scattered everywhere. It's a heartbreaking scene. It is all too common here in Japan. Michiko Ueda is an associate professor at Waseda University who studies loneliness. While she says Japan's aging population is at great risk of isolation, it's actually the young that suffer most. Her research, analyzing the public's mental health, found 40% of the entire Japanese population feels loneliness. For those under 40, that number is 50%. They have high suicidal ideation. They wanted to kill themselves very often. And then also they feel like they're useless because they have no meaning in life. So the, the psychological effect of loneliness on individuals is very, very high. A psychological effect likely impacting more people as a result of the pandemic. In 2020, for the first time in 11 years, the suicide rate in Japan increased from the previous year and changed. What typically happened is during the economic crisis, the middle-aged men died by suicide. But now it's the young women, so definitely something different is going on. And the numbers show it's getting worse. According to the National Police Agency, the suicide rate in the month of April increased more than 19% compared to last April. While the pandemic has claimed more than 10,000 lives in Japan during that time, more than 23,000 people have taken their own life. For Nanako Takayama, those numbers are personal. She experienced loneliness, depression, and contemplated suicide when she was 30 years old, shortly after giving birth to her first child. I wanted to disappear. I didn't know how to handle my feelings, and it was too painful to think about what to do. About a decade later, Takayama studies psychology and is a counselor at Anata no Ibasho, a place for you, which is a 24-hour chat service for those who just need someone to listen. 
At times, she interacts with four to five people a day. She uses her own struggle with loneliness to help others. I want to say that you are not alone. We seriously want to listen to your story. Voicing your concern is never a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you're running away from the problem or you're weak. Experts say about 30,000 people here in Japan die lonely deaths each year. And when that happens, this is the result. Cleaners asked to come in to pick up the pieces of a life lost. I can't get used to this forever. Time has stopped here. I can feel what kind of life he was having here right away. Honestly speaking, my heart aches. And Tetsuchi Sakamoto is Japan's new minister of loneliness. He says his first task is to identify those who are isolated, lonely, and at risk of being cut out from society. Now, Japan isn't the first country to appoint a minister of loneliness. The United Kingdom did so back in 2018, largely a focus on loneliness experienced by the elderly. Of course, in Japan, the issue isn't limited to one demographic. And here, Paula, it affects boys, girls, men and women of all ages. Yeah, a sad but important story there, Blake. Thanks for bringing it to us. And loneliness, social isolation, and suicide, we've been saying, are not issues unique to Japan. For support right around the world, the International Association for Suicide Prevention keeps a worldwide directory of resources and hotlines. You can also turn to befrienders worldwide, and you can see their web addresses right there for you on your screen. We will be right back with the opening bell here live from the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome back to First Move. The firm Global Payments, you see them there, have opened, have rung the bell and they've opened here on what is a bit of a lackluster day. Now the company has just added, been added to the Fortune 500 and is celebrating its 20th anniversary as a public company. Now, as you can see there, U.S. stocks little changed in early trading with tech seeing some early session gains. This one snuck up on me a little bit. Tech stocks are actually the big winners last week, uh, rising almost 2%. The Nasdaq now less than half a percent away from all-time highs. Tech getting a boost from the eerily quiet bond markets. And that is also surprising, I think. Ten-year yields are ticking a bit higher today, but still near three-month lows, despite last week's hotter-than-expected inflation data. The U.S. releases its latest look on producer prices and retail sales tomorrow. Meantime, shares of electric vehicle firm Lordstown Motors are tumbling in early trading on news that its CEO and CFO are now leaving the company. Lordstown warned last week that it had, quote, substantial doubt about whether it could continue operations. The company's board is looking into charges that executives may have misled investors about the pre-order demand for its main product, an electric pickup truck that has yet to even begin production. The SEC has begun an investigation into the matter. From the financial woes at Lorestown and the financial outlook to the Fed, Fed policymakers are set to announce their latest economic forecast later this week. We are keeping an eye, as is Paula Monica, as you see him there, on those housing numbers that suggest the U.S. economy may be losing a bit of strength. Paul, I am a bit skeptical about this. What say you on this all-important week when the Fed begins its two-day meeting tomorrow? Yeah, clearly, Paula, there's going to be a lot of focus. You already mentioned retail sales and PPI coming out tomorrow. We have May numbers for housing starts also. The Fed is squarely focused right now on two things, making sure that the economic recovery that has been incredibly robust, uh, you know, surprisingly so, 
since last March and April, the depths of the COVID recession. They want to keep that sustained, even if it means inflation picking up a little bit more than some might otherwise like. And that's going to be, I think, the key question to see what the Fed's inflation outlook looks like when they give their latest projections, what Jerome Powell says about that during the press conference and what he's asked about inflation and how hot the Fed will let it run. Those, are, I think, are the things that investors are really going to be paying close attention to. Yeah. And in terms of paying close attention, when we see these indicators this week, there could be a moment here where the economy does have to take a pause. Is there a sense of that? Because there are labor shortages. There are material shortages. Do you think the Fed is starting to see that in their data? Yeah, I think the Fed is cognizant of, to use Jerome Powell's favorite word, some of the transitory impacts that have been lifting inflation recently. And part of that is obviously wage increases due to those labor shortages that you just mentioned, Paula. So the Fed is not going to, I think, err on the side of overreacting with a kind of knee jerk to any inflation data that appears to look as if prices are running amok, because I think the Fed realizes that because some of these short-term disruptions to the supply chain and the labor market, that things might settle down over the next couple of months. And you could have a nice, steady couple of months of jobs growth where you don't wind up having very big inflationary pressures. And that will justify the Fed keeping rates near zero for um, you know, a while longer. What's interesting here is, do you sense that there is debate uh, around that Fed table right now? Because sometimes we have seen that happen, especially with this issue, which it's difficult to get any experts to agree. Yeah, I would be expecting when you see the dot plots in the latest Fed projections that it will show a bit of a variety with regards to when some members think that rates need to go up. And there are obviously some on the Fed who are more hawkish than Jerome Powell. But even though the Fed needs to vote on all these matters, we we know that Jerome Powell is clearly steering the Fed ship and will be doing so at least until February of next year. You know, Joe Biden does have to announce fairly soon if he wants to renominate Powell for a second term or go with someone else. But I think that even if there are some who dissent on the Fed and think that they need to start thinking about rate hikes a little bit sooner, the majority of Fed members are probably going to be in Powell's camp. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, That's good for teeing up that uh, renewal of that job for Jay Powell, because that is coming up. Perhaps how he handles this whole inflation thing will play a part in that. A fresh face, Paul LaMonica. Does it mean anything, Paul? Anything? Any market direction from you shaving? No? No, it has nothing to do with the market. It's all about the temperature and the humidity in New York. I just got tired of it. All right. All right. All good to know. Just checking. All good to know, especially on a day like this when the markets are meandering. Thank you, Paul LaMonica. Appreciate it. Now, the sharp price increases are concentrated in sectors most affected by the pandemic, such as hotels, of course. This, as Hyatt Hotels says, bookings in the United States are back to 2019 levels from this summer. But the company says European travel, and this is key here, may not fully return until September. And Asia, of course, is also behind 2019 levels. Joining us now is President and CEO of Hyatt Hotels, Mark Hoplomatsian. And thank you so much for joining us. How travel has changed. I cannot believe the year and a half that you must have had. What are you learning now from how things have changed how is Hyatt responding to, you know, the changing demands from guests, really, and a very changed economy? 
Uh, Paula, thanks for having me this morning. Um, yes, we've learned a lot over this past year. And uh, what I will say right away is that many of the predictions that were made earlier in the pandemic are proving not to be reliable. And I think that's not surprising because trying to predict the future in the middle of a crisis is um, a tough thing to do and probably not advisable. Um, I, what I see is massive pent up demand uh, across the globe. And that's resulting in a lot of domestic, intra-domestic travel, meaning market by market around the world, people are traveling within country, primarily at this point because um, traveling internationally is still challenging. The EU just signed into law today the legislation that will um, implement uh, vaccine passports that will become effective on July 1st, which should uh, open up travel in and amongst EU countries and hopefully uh, eventually to the EU from places like the United States. Um, but I would say some of the key learnings are that um, corporate uh, customers are looking to get their people back together. They need help in creating a hybrid platform. We So we focused our attention on launching a new hybrid platform called Together by Hyatt to integrate a digital channel into an in-person experience. And on the, on the leisure side, uh, people are desperate to get out and be with friends and family and reconnect. So that drive to human connection has never been stronger. When we talk about conventional wisdom, we had heard one thing during the pandemic that, look, business travel wasn't going to return for a long time. This is all about leisure travel. Have you seen that? Yeah, so uh, I, that, that was absolutely the narrative. And um, first of all, leisure travel has returned. Uh, we are running well ahead of 2019 um, levels in our bookings over, say, the upcoming July 4th holiday in the United States. Our bookings into our resorts are up variously between 30 and even 60 percent if you go to Mexico and look at the resorts there. So the demand is really, really strong for leisure, especially over the holiday periods. <clears throat> um, I think the prediction about the decline or death of business travel and large group convenings uh, was very, very greatly exaggerated. So what we're seeing is corporations who are keen to get people, their own people back together. So among other things that came out over the course of the pandemic, a lot of companies said, yeah, uh, we won't actually spend money on travel with respect to internal meetings. And that's already being disproven. So we've got a lot of cor corporations coming to us for uh, the end of this year, fourth quarter of this year, uh, trying to put uh, meetings together so that they can reconvene their own people. And uh, our first two large scale group meetings for corporations are two pharma companies that are launching new products. Because as you know, these new development platforms that have uh, come to light over the past year and a half are going to be highly uh, productive and, and there's going to be a lot of new drug development that's uh, unfolding over time. So we're seeing that come back. It is fascinating just that the conventional wisdom, as far as you're seeing anyway in your industry, did not hold up on that. Let's talk about that inflationary pressure. It's the talk of the week, the month, possibly the year. What are you seeing in terms of inflation, whether it has to do with your supply chains or your staff? Yeah, so we're seeing inflation on three different dimensions. The first is um, construction materials inflation. That's That's been problematic in terms of having new developments, new hotel developments um, begin. I think that's temporal, but it's with us right now, especially things like lumber, which have uh, increased um, enormously. Uh, we're seeing uh, factor costs inflation in terms of uh, operating ho a hotel, including wage rate inflation. 
And we do think that there will be uh, wage rate inflation. It's almost impossible that it won't take hold because we're still having a very hard time uh, finding people to come back into our hotels. Uh, the final piece of inflation that we're seeing is um, rate inflation. We're, we're running at rates, uh, I'm talking about average daily rates in our hotels, especially in our resorts that are well ahead of 2019 levels. So over the Memorial Day weekend, these are somewhat, uh, these are individual examples and maybe you cannot extrapolate from them, but they're interesting uh, data points. Our resorts in the United States ran uh, an AD, uh, average daily rate that was over 30% higher than 2019 levels. Wow, so our, in our industry, inflation actually is uh, usually a positive from a profitability and a flow-through perspective because while costs are going up, uh, rates are going up as well. We get to reprice our inventory every day. Yeah, that is so insightful just to know that. Just to actually put a, a, a you know, put an actual 30% marker on that so people are actually seeing that. Clearly the demand for your resorts was there and the prices reflected that. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Good insights there for all of us. My pleasure, Paula. Thank you. Up next here on First Move, unpacking the boxed listing. We talk to the retailer CEO as the company prepares to go public. breaking market news, online retailer Boxed is going public. The company announced a SPAC merger listing this morning. The deal values it at almost $900 million. Boxed may be the wholesale grocer of choice for millennials, but it sells more than just food. Earlier this year, Boxed signed a deal that gives it one of Asia's biggest retailers use of its software. Joining me now is Che Wang. He is CEO of Box, and apparently you are joining me from the place it all started. This must be momentous for you to be sitting, I believe, in your parents' garage as you announce that you're That's now right. going public. That's right, Paula. Thanks for having me. So that is, you know, you rewind eight years. This is where we shipped uh, our first ever package, and here I am uh, again today. So I guess it just shows the trajectory we've been on uh, to the momentous day today, but uh, hopefully that will continue into the uh, years to come. Why a SPAC? Why now? And and how do you feel about the valuation? Yeah, I think uh, SPAC has uh, a few really great things uh, for us as a company. You know, it's a, it's unique uh, for everyone and everyone's position, but for us, it was three main things. One was really the quantum of capital that we can provide, so or that we can raise. So. Uh, Seven Oaks, the SPAC that we're merging with, has $260 million uh, in trust. We bolster that with a $120 million pipe. So that quantum of capital is really much larger than you would get in a traditional IPO. I think, too, a lot of folks don't know that we have a really uh, sizable B2B business that got absolutely hammered last year because of COVID. Uh, but as we come out of that, uh, as we're reopening here in America, um, we can tell that story, as well as that story that you just mentioned about really beginning to sell our technology overseas uh, and first to Eon. Um, and then third, uh, uh, of course, uh, for us uh, to be able to uh, bring our company uh, public in a very momentous, uh, unique and expedited way uh, is a third reason. So all those reasons really uh, uh, force us to pick uh, a SPAC over a traditional IPO. And I know that gave you a, a lot more flexibility and freedom. And I will get back to the point that your company, what you're trying to model here is a tech company, not just that this kind of a wholesale business. I do want to turn to the wholesale, though, in a second. You know, we were just on talking about all the inflationary pressure. What 
are you seeing right now? Because I would think in terms of supply chain issues, this is not a great time for people buying in bulk in terms of price pressure. What is going on? Yeah, it's well, I, I would argue that it is the best time to buy in bulk because uh, uh, you're still capturing those savings. But to that point, uh, you're exactly right. You're seeing price pressures all across the board and supply chain pressures all across the board. Uh, nothing new for us, though. Uh, during the pandemic, you saw that initial surge with toilet paper, then it moved to different pockets. The pockets are more sporadic these days, but there still are supply chain challenges uh, up and down the supply chain uh, across all different industries. So um, you're starting to see uh, input prices go up for these manufacturers, uh, and some of it is, is starting to come downstream for us. We've always focused on trying to provide value to customers all around America. And so we're going to try to keep those prices low for as long as possible. Yeah, it's that value proposition, though, that I wonder about going forward, especially in a company like yours. I do want to turn to that B2B business, though. With someone who, I'm going to call out my country, Canada, it is pathetic, online shopping. And so when I see um, uh, a company like yours doing that that integral B2B service uh, for retailers, just explain a little bit about why such a large chain in Japan would have turned to you for this B2B service. Yeah, so when you think about kind of what we do and how we do it, uh, we sell potato chips. Uh, then we began to sell advertising to sell the potato chips. And then now we sell the software that sells the advertising that sells the potato chips. And so that end-to-end infrastructure, that end-to-end technology is really important. And it allows folks like Eon to really leapfrog their competition with one call. So it's really white labeling all the technology we built here, all the software and placing it on top of a very gigantic business, you know, Eon's an 80 plus billion dollar company. Uh, we're going to start with Malaysia with them first. So uh, hopefully investors out there will see that we not only have U.S. Uh, uh, kind of tailwinds uh, in uh, the reopening of America, but also we can capture uh, the momentum in Asia and Southeast Asia in particular uh, as they get better uh, and exit the, uh, uh, the COVID crisis. Okay, I got to get out of here, but three rapid fire questions. One, do you see a percentage difference between what we think of you as boxed and then your B2B? 50-50, 40-60? Yeah, traditionally 75-25. Last year, because B2B had so much headwinds, uh, uh, 90-10. So you're going to see that recover. Okay, rapid fire. One one word takeaway from the pandemic. What'd you learn? Um... Toilet paper. Uh, I wish I had a different one, but uh, toilet paper was it. I, I've, st- I've stumped you. There you go. And last question. What's the one thing that your parents really want you to get out of the goddamn garage? <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> probably me. So uh, I told them, don't come in the garage. Don't worry. I got an important meeting, Mom. Just don't open that door. Uh, and she has no idea what's going on here. So uh, she'll see the clip later. <laughs> the background will look familiar. I love it because my parents are still nagging me to get the stuff out of the garage. Uh, And I'm much older than you. I can tell you that. Thanks so much for playing ball here on First Move. And we'll wait to see what happens with that all-important IPO. Thanks so much. Now, it was billed as Freedom Day by some of the UK media. But now they're saying the official easing of all remaining COVID restrictions in England is set to be delayed. We'll tell you why. Coming up. final easing of COVID-19 restrictions appears to be slipping back in England. The government has was set to remove all limits on social contact in a week, but media reports say the Prime Minister is likely to announce a delay in the coming hours. Scott McLean uh, is in Downing Street now. He's been following all of this for us. 
And, you know, I've been obsessive about watching those numbers of the cases go up and the hospitalizations go up ever so slightly in the U.K. as well. This is really quite a setback. It is. And a lot of countries, Paula, ought to be watching the UK to see how they manage to handle this influx of the Delta variant, the one that was first discovered in India, um, especially the United States, where that variant is showing up in about 10 percent of all new cases. Here in the UK, one week from today was supposed to be Britain's Freedom Day, where all of the remaining COVID restrictions were set to be lifted. This would allow things like sporting venues at full capacity, theaters at full capacity and nightclubs to finally reopen after well over a year of being closed. Now the British press is reporting that that's all set to be delayed by about four weeks uh, to give the government a little bit more time to figure out what's what and maybe to get a few more vaccines in, in people's arms. And it's all because of this Delta variant. And I want to show you a, a, an animation that really shows just how quickly this variant has spread across the country. On that map you see there, the darker the color, the higher the proportion of the Delta variant. It spreads, according to the British government, 64% faster than the previously dominant strain, the UK variant or the Alpha variant. And right now it's showing up in more than 90% of all new cases. The government has even called in the army to help with door-to-door testing, but those efforts to really contain this variant seem to have failed so far. And so the UK, in order to prevent uh, you know, the healthcare system from being overwhelmed and from deaths from getting out of control is really down to their last line of defense, which of course is the vaccination program. Most adults in this country have had two doses of the vaccine, um, but we know from British scientists that one dose isn't going to do you that much good. That's because this strain of the virus, the vaccine isn't quite as effective. So if you've only got one shot against the alpha variant, Paula, you'd expect it about to be about 50% effective. With this Delta variant, it's only about 33%. There's also a slight drop off, even for people who are fully vaccinated from 88 down to 81. So this four week delay seems to buy the government a little bit more time to get some older people a second shot and to get some younger people who right now, by the way, most of them don't have any immunity at all, at least some level of protection, Paula. Yeah, that is the issue, right? This variant, the Delta variant, and the fact that you need more protection that you needed from the other variants. Scott McLean, you'll be watching it all in the coming hours. Thank you very much. And finally for us, it was a hot and spicy end this year's Westminster Kennel Club dog show. Meet Wasabi, the Pekingese, this year's, oh, so cute, this year's best in show. The three-year-old pooch took home awards on Sunday for best in breed and best in the toy dog group. This year's competition was held outside for the first time in more than 100 years because of the pandemic, of course. Wasabi's breeder promised to give the pup a filet mignon, can you believe it, but not sushi, in order to celebrate the win. That is it for us today on First Move. Uh, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.